Thank you, Tom and Debbie. How many believe the Lord's coming soon? When you look at all that's going on in this world, we can't help but believe that. And we need to respond as the way John responded in the book of Revelation. He said, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. I don't know about you. I'm not looking for the undertaker. I'm looking for the uppertaker. And I believe he's coming back soon. All right, if you would please open your Bibles again to the book of Galatians, chapter 5. Galatians, chapter 5, please. If you're here today, do not bring a Bible with you. We hope that you'll borrow one of those Bibles for the service. It'll be page 1642. I'll be turning to several scriptures today. Many of them will be on the screen. Some will turn to together. So the title of the message this morning is, Who is in Control? If you look on the screen, you'll see a man riding the horse. And you have to ask yourself, who is in control? Is the man in control of the horse? Is the horse in control of the man? They're both striving to bring each other in control. The man's riding the horse to bring him into submission and to break him to make him uh, submit. And um, the horse is seeking to break the man, literally, and get him off his back. The Bible talks about two influences we have in our lives that wants to bring us into submission. They both uh, want to uh, bring us into the control. So we're going to look at that this morning. I hope you uh, use your notes. There's in your bulletin. Bring, take it out. Fill in the blanks from the screen. And we're going to write these down together. First of all, let's look at the controlling parties. The controlling parties. Galatians 5, verse 16, please. Two parties that desire to control you. First of all, in Galatians 5, 16, it says, This I say then, walk in the spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. The two parties seeking to control you, first of all, letter A is the Holy Spirit. God's Holy Spirit. When you were saved, God gave you his Holy Spirit to bring control in your life. The next one is man's sinful flesh. Man's sinful flesh. Interesting, when the Spirit controls you, you're going to experience joy and peace and blessings. When the flesh controls you, you're going to experience spiritual destruction and ruin. Both of these parties want to control your life, the controlling parties. Number two, let's look at the conflict within. The conflict within. Look in verse 17, please. It says, For the flesh lusteth against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary the one to the other. So that you cannot do the things that you would. The word lusteth here means long for, covet. Both of these parties long for, desire to control your life. What the spirit desires in your life is contrary to what the spirit, uh, the flesh does. But they both want to. And the word lusteth again is like a tug of war. The spirit on one side, the flesh on the other, and you're caught in the middle. Both of these want to control your life. It's a conflict we all experience. So let's talk, first of all, understand the opponents. You need to understand who these two parties are. The first one, of course, is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. Each believer has the Spirit living inside him. And many of you know these truths, but some people are fairly new Christians need to understand this. First of all, the Holy Spirit, letter A, the Holy Spirit is a person. The Holy Spirit is a person. Amen. The Jehovah Witnesses refer to him as a force or influence. They don't believe he's a person. He's a force in your life to influence you. Now, the Holy Spirit does have great force and has a great influence, but he is a person. 
in John 16, verse 13, the verse will be on the screen, I want you to notice several times that Jesus referred to the Holy Spirit as a he. In verse 13, John 16, Jesus said, Howbeit, when he, the Spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth, for he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak, and he shall show you things to come. Verse 14, he shall glorify me, and for he shall receive a mine and show it unto you. Interesting, the pen over here, if it needs tuning, we don't say he needs tuning. We say what? It needs tuning. Jesus did not refer to the Holy Spirit as an it. Over and over again, it's like a broken record. He, he, he. He's a person. But also, it says he speaks. He hears. The piano can't speak or hear. These are only actions of a person. So the Holy Spirit is a person that lives inside of us. Number two, the second thing about the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is God. He's the third person of the Godhead, the third person of the Trinity. The Holy Spirit is God himself dwelling in the life of the believer. The Holy Spirit is a person. He is God. In Acts chapter 5, we have a story where the people, many people are coming to the apostles giving money to the Lord. And a man by the name of Ananias sold some property, and he's bringing the money to the Lord. And basically, he sold it for a certain amount, but only brought a certain, a smaller amount to the Lord. And notice what it says in Acts 5, verse 3. This verse will be on the screen. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled thy heart to lie to who? The Holy Ghost. And to keep back part of the price of the land. Verse 4. Was it remained? Was it not in thine own? And after it was sold, was it not in thy hand own power? Why hast thou conceived this thing in thy heart? Thou hast not lied unto men, but unto who? God. So verse 3, it says Ananias lied to the Holy Spirit. In verse 4, it said he lied to God. Now, is that a contradiction? No, they're one and the same. This person that indwells you, that seeks to control you, he's a person and he's God himself. The third thing about this controlling party is the Holy Spirit dwells or lives in every believer. The Holy Spirit dwells and lives in every believer. In 1 Corinthians 3, one thing the Corinthian believers did not understand, that the Holy Spirit they knew much about actually lives in every Christian. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16, he says, Know ye not that ye are the temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwelleth where? In you. Many times we refer to this building as God's house, God's temple. But in reality, biblically speaking, what is God's house? It's the body of the believer. When you were saved, God came in and took permanent residence in you. He, you are the temple of God. In 1 Corinthians 6, he says it again. He begins with a question, what? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which you have of God, and you're not your own. These believers were involved with some activity contrary to the Bible, inappropriate for the believer. He said, don't you realize when you involve yourself in sin, you actually... Got, say God himself in that, because your body is God's temple. In fact, Romans 8, verse 9 says, Now if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he's none of his. So as a Christian, if I claim to be saved, and I say the Spirit of God does not indwell me, my friend, the Bible says that means you're not saved. 
So the first controlling party in my life is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is a person. He's God himself, and he's chosen to live in my body as his temple. That's understanding the opponent. Now, let's look at the next opponent, our sinful flesh. Our sinful flesh. Look where, please. Every one of us have what is called the sinful flesh. It's referred to as the old nature. You inherited that all the way back to Adam. When Adam chose to disobey God, he sinned, and then he plunged the whole human race in sin. Each and every one of us have a sinful nature. It was given to us by a biological father. Every one of us have that. We have a bent on doing wrong. We have a sinful nature. Listen carefully, please. You, you're not a sinner because you sin. You sin because you're a sinner. Think about that. I, I sin because I'm a sinner by nature. I've inherited that sinful nature called the flesh. Let me give you several things about the flesh. Hope you write them down. First of all, go now to Romans, please, verse 7, chapter 7. Romans 7. You keep your finger in Galatians. We're coming back to that. Romans 7, page 1589. Give me some characteristics about this next controlling party. The first one is the Holy Spirit, who is a person who is God, and he lives permanently in the, in the body of every Christian. The second opponent is our sinful flesh. And let's talk about the flesh now. Romans 7, first of all, there's nothing good in the flesh. There's nothing good in the flesh. In Romans 7, verse 18, please. Romans 7, 18. Again, page 1589 for those using a church Bible. Look what Paul said. Paul said, for I know that is in me, that is in my flesh, dwelleth what? No good thing. For to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good I find not. Here Paul is not talking about his physical body, but his sinful flesh. Interesting. Some people, some churches teach that through growing and maturing in Christian life, you can make your flesh better. Notice Paul, the apostle, one of the writers of the New Testament, he says, for I know that is in my flesh dwelleth how much good? No good. Listen to me, please. When you got saved, your flesh didn't get one iota better. It's just as sinful after salvation as it is before salvation. It is nothing good about it. It dwelleth no good. Number two, letter B, the next thing about our flesh is that it is hostile toward God. Your flesh is hostile toward God. Look in chapter 8, if you would please. Romans 8. We saw Paul said, there's nothing good in me, not my flesh. But Romans 8, verse 7. Romans 8, verse 7. Here Paul says, because the carnal mind is what? Enmity against God. The carnal mind, the word carnal means fleshly. When our mind or thinking is controlled by the flesh, it is enmity, opposition to God. So this flesh that all of us have is nothing good about it and is uh, hostile toward God. Letter C, the third thing about this opponent, this company that lives inside of us, is it will not submit itself to God. The flesh will not submit itself to God. In chapter uh, 8, verse 7, the latter part of it, it talks about for it, the flesh, is not subject to the law of God, neither can it be. 
Now, come here, please. As a Christian, you still have a sinful flesh. There's nothing good about it. It's hostile to God, and it will not submit itself to God. There's a part of me wants nothing to do with God. That will not submit myself to God is called the flesh. The word is said is not subject. The word subject is a military term for subjection to others. The word is in the present tense, which means it continues to be uh, in, in subordination. It will not submit itself to God. Letter D. Now I'm going somewhere with all this. Don't let me lose you, okay? <laughs> Letter D. The flesh is nothing good in it. It is hostile toward God. It will not submit itself to God. And letter D, it cannot please God. It cannot please God. In Romans 8, verse 8, So then that they that are in the flesh cannot please God. What he's saying here, as a Christian, there's a part of me, there's nothing good about it. It's called the flesh. It's hostile toward the Lord. It will not submit itself to the Lord. And when I'm controlled by the flesh, I cannot please the Lord. It's, that's the flesh. Now, remember, both of these are trying to control you. The Holy Spirit, which is a person, which is God, who lives inside you, but also not something else inside me. It's called the flesh. And it also wants to control me. Now, we're talking about understanding the opponents. Now, look at comprehending the conflict. I want us to comprehend the conflict going inside of us. Look here in Romans 7 again, please. Romans 7, verse 19. When I first read this verse, I thought Paul was talking about me. But he was talking about himself. Every Christian can uh, understand this in their own lives. Chapter 7, verse 19. Paul said, For the good that I would, I do not. But the evil which I would not, that I do. Verse 20, now if I do that which I would not, it is no more I that doeth but what? Sin, talking about the sinful nature that dwelleth in me. Interesting, many years ago, there were two ladies sitting right over here, and they visited our church, and this is many years ago, and I could tell by their attire they were from a different denomination. Not being critical, I could have seen they dressed differently, looked differently. They're both senior adults. They both had long hair pulled up in a bun. They had... Very conservative dress, sleeves down the wrist, the hem down at the bottom. They're just very conservative. And I went about the service and introduced myself. I said, so glad to have you with us. I went and did a little small talk. And one of the ladies said, Pastor, I got good news. She said, I haven't sinned in the last 13 years. <laughs> and I thought to myself, you just sinned. <laughs> you just lied. Because she believed what they call the second blessing, sanctification, that a Christian can reach a point in their life that they eradicate the flesh. The flesh is no longer there. And I thought to myself, are you more spiritual than the Apostle Paul? Here the Apostle Paul, the writer of the most, most of the New Testament, the human author. He says, for the good that I would, I do not do. But the very thing I hate, I end up doing. How many resemble that remark? We all struggle with that. That's the struggle of the two. Basically, it's like a tug of war. On one end is the Holy Spirit, on the other end is the flesh, and pulling me both directions. And in the process, the things that I should do, I end up not doing. And the things I should not do, I end up doing that. He said, now, now therefore, it's no more I that's doing it, but the sin nature in me. It wants to control you. 
Let me give you three things about this conflict. And I hope you write them down. I go through them quickly. And then we're going to move on. This conflict in the life of a believer, number one, is a continuous conflict. Number two, it's a daily struggle. Number three, it's a lifelong battle. This conflict between the flesh and the spirit is a continuous conflict. It's a daily struggle. It's a lifelong battle. The Bible says, as long as you live in this physical body, there's going to be a struggle in your life. It will be there until the day you die. When you go to heaven, you get a new body. No more flesh. How many is looking forward to that time? But until then, there's a struggle. Every day, a struggle in our lives between the flesh and the spirit. Many of you experienced that this morning. You got up this morning, and the spirit said, hey, this is God's day. What would be in God's house, the worship of God's people? But the flesh says, not me. I've worked all week. I'm going to stay home and relax. How many of you experienced that this morning? Now, you submitted to the Holy Spirit, and you're here. But there are many that did not. They stayed home because the flesh got the best of them. That happens all the time. Many of you are driving down the road, and you're late to work, and you're trying to get there quickly, and all of a sudden, somebody pulls out in front of you and goes very, very slow. <laughs> the Spirit says, God bless him, he must be ill. <laughs> but the flesh says, get out of the way, you bum. <laughs> There's a conflict there. It, it, it is a daily struggle. It will be with you until the day you go to heaven. You need to understand the conflict. Next, let me give you the secret to success. A secret to success. Success over the flesh and live according to the spirit. Real quickly, I'm going to cover this more at the end if time allows us. The key is in two words. Verse 16 is the word walk. Walk in the spirit. The word walk means to regulate one's life, to conduct oneself. Basically, to walk in the Spirit means I submit myself to the Spirit's control every single day. I live my life under the Spirit's control. The next word, verse 18, is the word led. But if you be led of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit wants to lead you, guide you, and control you. Your responsibility is submit to that. That's the secret to success. We'll come back to that in a moment. So we looked at the controlling parties. What are the controlling parties? Two of them. The Holy Spirit and our sinful flesh. And the the conflict is within inside of us to control us. Number three, here are the clues of whom is in control. How do I know if the flesh is controlling me? How do I know if the Spirit is controlling me? I'm glad you asked. And look again now in uh, Galatians chapter 5, verse 19. Here it talks about the deeds or the actions of the flesh. The deeds or actions of the flesh. Verse 19. Again, if you turn it back to Galatians, page 1642. Paul said, now the works, that means the actions, the deeds of the flesh, are manifest, which are these. In other words, the flesh will make itself known in your life through these actions. And notice these actions, deeds, fall into three categories. Hope you write them down. Number one. Is sexual sins. Sexual sins. Our society is just full of sexual sin. And the first one here is mentioned here in verse 19 is adultery. Adultery. Adultery is a sin only a married person can commit. It's sexual intercourse with someone other than your spouse. Television is full of adultery. 
Our world's full of adultery. And sad to say, even many churches are full of adultery. It's a deed of the flesh. The second one is fornication. Now, I'll be going through these quickly because the time will not allow us to spend much time on them. Fornication is any sexual activity outside the bonds of marriage. It can be living together, sex between uh, people that are not married. It can refer to homosexuality, lesbian, incest, bestiality. Any sex outside the bonds of a man and woman who are married is fornication. That's the deeds of the flesh. The next one is uncleanness. Uncleanness. This is moral uncleanness in thought, word, or deed. The flesh not only control your actions, it control the way you think. It control the way that you uh, uh, speak. The next one is lasciviousness. These are deeds of the flesh. Lasciviousness is unbridled, uncontrolled lust. Interesting, that word fornication, the Greek word is pornea, where you get the word pornography from. Pornography is just full of sexual sin. That's what it is. Sad to say, so many men, even Christian men, feed their minds on such garbage. So the first deed, sexual sin. Number two, the second category, is religious sins. Religious sins. Mentioned two words here. Chapter 5, verse 20. It says idolatry. Idolatry is the worship of a pagan or false gods. Many years ago, my wife and I went to Myanmar, Burma is called, and we saw there uh, saw a pagoda, which is a temple where they, people would come and worship Buddha. What was interesting, which I never saw before, they had statues of Buddha, and people would just bow down and worship it. My friend, that is idolatry. Now, see, Pastor, we live in America. There's no idolatry in America. I'm sad to say you're mistaken. Idolatry is when you put anything in your life before God. It could be a car. It could be a person. It could be a thing. When something becomes more important to you than God is, my friend, that is idolatry. That is a deed of the flesh. The next one is witchcraft. Witchcraft. That word in the Greek language is the word pharmakia, where we get the word pharmacy from. Basically, it's the worship of evil powers accompanied by the use of drugs. In fact, this is very prevalent in the last days in the book of Revelation during the tribulation period. You see it over and over again. Number three, the first category is sexual sin, the next religious sins, and now societary evils, evils of our society. In the middle part of verse 20, I'll go through these quickly. But you've seen the deeds of the flesh. First is hatred. Have you ever hated somebody? Can a Christian be guilty of hatred? Yes. Somebody hurts you deeply. It does something against you. You do not deserve. Our flesh wants to hate them. Number two, variance. Variance is behavior that creates disharmony and discord. Boy, many Christian homes are full of this. Behavior that creates disharmony and discord. Number three, emulations. Emulations is envy, envious, and contentious rivalry. Sometimes you see this among teenagers, among kids. A lot of rivalry because of envy among them. Jealousy. The next one, wrath. Wrath is outbursts of uncontrolled anger. Can a Christian be guilty of wrath? Many Christians lose their temper. All of a sudden, boom, they explode, and everybody around them suffers. My friend, when that happens... 
They're controlled by the flesh. The next one, strife, means contention and conflict. So many Christian homes are guilty containing contention and division, conflict over strife. Seditions means disunion and division. Heresies is not talking about false doctrine here. It's talking about dissensions arising from diversity of opinions. I've seen in Sunday school classes, two people go at because they disagree on Scripture to the point they become ugly about it. My friend, that is heresy. Next, envies, jealousy, murders. Can a Christian commit murder? Listen carefully, please. As a believer, you are capable of doing anything the unbeliever can do because you still have the flesh. Think of Moses. Think of David, a man for God's own heart. Both were guilty of murder because they were controlled by the flesh. You may be surprised what you can do when the flesh is in control. Drunkenness. Can a true born-again child of God get drunk? Yes, they can. That's a part of the flesh, a deeds of the flesh. And the last one, revelings, is rowdy, boisterous, and crude behavior due to the influence of alcohol. And it says, and such like. That means there's many more of these deeds other than what's mentioned here. So these are the deeds of the flesh. But you want to, the latter part of verse 21, we have a solemn warning here. A solemn warning. It says, of the which I tell you before, as I have told you in time past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. What does that mean? If we're honest, we look at those things. Many of us have done them quite often or done them in the past. What does it mean, they that do such things? The key word of this passage is the word do. Here's what Strong's uh, Greek dictionary defines the word do. The word do is a primary verb meaning to practice, that is, perform repeatedly and habitually. One commentary put it this way. Do meaning to practice. This is the key word in Paul's warning. The sense of the Greek verb describes a continual Habitual action. Although believers undoubtedly can commit these sins, those people whose basic character is summed up in the uninterrupted and unrepentant practice of them, chances are do not belong to God. One of my favorite commentaries is called the Bible Knowledge Commentary. It says this, The apostles solemnly warned the Galatians that those who live like this, who habitually indulge in these fleshly sins, will not inherit the kingdom of God. This does not say that if a Christian loses, he will lose his salvation if he lapses into these sins, but that a person who lives continually on such a level of moral corruption gives evidence that they're not a child of God. That's what it's saying. But let me give you some indication that a person is saved. Hope you write these down. These are evidence and indication that a person has been born again. And I hope you understand these. The first one, they all begin the letter D. The first one is dispute within, a conflict within. Every Christian will experience that conflict between the flesh and the spirit. My roommate in Bible college, one of my best friends, we roomed together for all four years. He was saved about six months before he went to Bible college. And we were together in our freshman class on Galatians. He learned this. He said, Brother Dave, one of the greatest verification, validity, that I'm a saved man is the struggle between the two, flesh and the spirit. Prior to salvation, there was no struggle. 
I just live for the flesh. That's all I enjoy doing. But now that I'm saying, if I do that, something inside me tears me up. There's conviction and guilt. It's the Holy Spirit. Every believer have that. If you're here today and you claim to be saved, and you don't have that conflict, there's a good chance you're not a believer. You've been born again. The second one, the second indication you've been born again, is the desires for the things of God. Desires for the things of God. Let me just read the scripture to you. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, it says, According to his divine power, hath given unto us all things that pertain to life and godliness. In verse 4, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these you might be partakers of a divine nature. Now listen carefully, please. When you were saved, the Spirit of God indwelt you. He created in you God's own nature. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he's a new what? Creature means new creation. When I was saved, the Spirit indwelt me, and he placed in me, created me God's nature. So I have two natures a sinful nature, and a divine nature. And with that new nature, divine nature, I have new desires. Now, I still have the old want-tos. When I got saved, I got new want-tos. That comes from that new nature. And you have that desire. For example, the Bible says in the book of 1 Peter chapter 2, as newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word that they may grow thereby. There's a part of me that longs to be in God's word. There's a part of me that longs to be in God's house. There's a part of me that wants to pray. But can I tell you something? There's a part of me that does not want to. Yep. Part of me that fights against it. Doesn't care a bit about the word of God. Doesn't want me to spend time in the house of God. It's called the conflict. But basically, when you got saved, God placed in you his nature, the nature of God. And with that comes godly desires. Now listen, please. The Bible says the believer can grieve the Holy Spirit can resist the Holy Spirit, but also uh, talks about other things we do to the Holy Spirit. Now, when we choose to obey the flesh, it grieves God. We can resist that, but listen to me carefully, please. God will never give up on you. You may grieve him, you may resist him, you may do things contrary to the Bible, but he will never give up on you. There's a part of me that's always there that desires to do right. That's another evidence that you're saved. The third evidence, the third indication you've been born again is discipline for disobedience. Discipline for disobedience. For the sake of time, I'll just read this to you. Hebrews 12, verse 6. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth and scourgeth every son whom he receives. If ye endure chastening, God dealeth with you as with sons. For what son is he whom the father chases not? But if you be without chastisement, means discipline, whereof all are partakers, then, you're, then you are bastards and not sons. What that means? As a Christian, excuse me, as a person who claims to be saved, and I go out and live in sin, I do not see the, uh, God intervene in my life to discipline me, means I'm not saved. I'm illegitimate. So these three indications, number one, first of all, there's a conflict in your life. Every believer has that conflict. Paul had it. Every Christian had that. Number two, godly desires. Though I still have sinful desires, because God gave me his nature, I now have new desires. 
to please the Lord, but also discipline. Every believer at some time in life will experience God's discipline, chastisement, because he's a child of God. Now, we saw the deeds of the flesh, and listen to me carefully, please. My time has run out. I need to go through these quickly, and I'm going to finish up here this morning. We saw the deeds of the flesh, but quickly now look in verse 22, Galatians 5:22. Look at the fruit of the Spirit, the deeds, the product of the Spirit of God controlling our lives. These also in three categories. The first one is qualities of the heart. Qualities of the heart. There's three I mentioned here. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, and peace. The word love is not a feeling. It's an action word. The Bible says we ought to love one another as Christ has loved us. But also it says love your enemies. Is that easy to do? It doesn't say feel good about your enemies. The word love is an action word. Your actions ought to be kindness and graceful towards those that are your enemies. God enables us to do that. The next one is joy. The word joy is a deep and inner <coughs> abiding rejoicing that does not depend on circumstances. Listen carefully, please. Happiness is based upon happenings. Joy is based upon the Holy Spirit. You can have joy and not be happy. Circumstances are not, sometimes are not what they like them to be. But amidst all that, you can have joy. Next one is peace. It's an inner calm and quietness, even in the face of adverse circumstances. Many of you know, sometimes go ahead, a heart attack. About two weeks ago, they placed in my chest here a pacemaker. It is there to control my heart rate. When I got saved, God gave me a peacemaker. <laughs> he makes peace in my life through the Holy Spirit. Both want to control me. This pacemaker controlled my heart rate. I'm feeling better because of it. But my friend, when I got saved, God gave me his Holy Spirit to create in me love, joy, and peace. He goes on to say now, not only qualities of the heart, number two, action toward others. Action toward others. It says long-suffering, gentleness, goodness. Long-suffering is forbearance under provocation. Gentleness is being graceful and kind toward others who deserve the opposite. Goodness is an action reaching out to others to do good to them when they deserve the opposite. And the last three is general conduct of the believer. General conduct of the believer. It says faith, meekness, temperance. The word faith is not talking about our trust in God. It's talking about faithfulness. Faithfulness. A Christian controlled by the Spirit of God be faithful to God. Next one, meekness. Meekness is strength and restraint. Temperance is self-control. So many believers lack self-control because they're controlled by the flesh. But when the Spirit of God controls me, I control myself and those desires I have of the flesh. And lastly, we've got to quit with this. Look at the condition for victory. What I have is not what I'm going to share with you. The condition for victory is twofold. We saw it already. It said, walk in the Spirit, be led of the Spirit. Now, look up here, please. I'm going to have you turn one more verse. Go ahead and turn that one more verse with me. Turn to me, if you would, please, to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. When you find that, look up here, please. 1 Corinthians 6, our last verse for this morning. Page 1607. 
when you find that every place. The key to victory over the flesh is every day, in a sense, when you get out of bed, fall on your knees. Say, Lord, I submit myself to your spirit today. I cannot live the Christian life in my own strength. I cannot be the Christian you want me to be without your spirit. So today I commit, surrender myself to his control, asking him to control me in everything that I do. And be mindful of that with every decision that you make. To walk in the spirit, but also to be led of the spirit. The spirit of God wants to lead you and guide you. And when you go through adverse circumstances, he wants to lead you and guide, control you through that. That's the key. But I want you to notice here in 1 Corinthians, we'll close with this. Paul mentioned the same thing to the church of Corinth as he did the churches of Galatia. Look in chapter 6, please. 1 Corinthians 6, page 1607. Look what he said. See if this doesn't sound familiar. Chapter 6, verse 9. Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor violers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. I think if we look through those, many of us can find some action that we've done in the past. And by the way, here's a Bible question for you. What does God call the Christian who's controlled by the flesh? Carnal, fleshly. If you read the book of Corinthians, just about every sin mentioned here is found in the Corinthian church. He said, you're not spiritual, you're carnal. But I love verse 11. He uses this to motivate them to live for the Lord. Verse 11, he says, and such were what? Some of you. He said, but you're washed, you're sanctified, you're justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of God. Close your Bibles, please. Look up here. Thank you for your patience this morning. These great truths, because many of the believers of Corinth were going back to their old way of life. And he addresses that. But he, what he did, the great truth to motivate them to live right, he says, all these sins, such were some of you. But you've been washed, you've been sanctified, you've been justified. You've been washed by the blood of Christ, you've been set apart from the penalty of your sin unto the Lord, and he's declared you righteous. My friend, as a Christian, as a blood-washed, sanctified, justified believer, that will motivate us to live for the Lord. And Paul was trying to use his great truths to motivate these believers to live for the Lord. So Christian, as you think of that horse and rider there, who's in control? In your life, who's in control? Is it the flesh or is it the spirit? They're both constantly fighting to control your life. This morning I've been speaking to those of you who know Christ as Savior. I've been sharing telling you the conflict we all have. But the question is, I want to close with this morning. Would you consider yourself a Christian? Would you consider yourself a child of God? If you're to die today, do you know for certain you'll go to heaven? If not, you can know that. Real quickly as we close, there are five simple things a person must understand and believe to go to heaven. And chances are, a group this size, there's some people that say, I don't know I'm going to heaven. I hope so, maybe. But do I know for certain? No. So quickly, the, the, the first three are bad news. The last two are good news. Number one, the Bible says we're all sinners. Have you ever seen a sinner before? Look up here. <laughs> Go look in the mirror. 
We all have sinned, come short of the glory of God. Number two, because we've sinned, there's a price tag. There's a penalty to pay. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. Because you've broken God's laws, commandments, you've earned judgment from God. And if you pay for your sin, you have to die and go to hell to do it. Number three, our good works cannot save us. The Bible says not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to mercy and save us. Your good works, nothing wrong with them, but they will not pay for sin. Many people believe good people go to heaven, bad people go to hell. If I'm going to make it, I've got to be good. My friend, nothing wrong with being good, but it won't save you. You can never be good enough. And your good works will not pay for sin because the penalty of sin is death. But here's the good news. The Bible said God loves you just the way you are. That God commended his love toward us in that while we are sinners, Christ died for us. God loves you as a sinner. And he sent a substitute to this earth to pay a penalty for you. Who was that? Jesus. The one who knew no sin became sin for us. And God punished him on the cross for what you've done wrong. He died for you. He was buried. And he rose again. And now, lastly, number five, God says, I'll forgive you. I'll give you eternal life. And a home in my heaven if you receive my sons, the one who died for you, to take you there. If you trust Christ as your Savior. John 3, 16. For God so loved the world, that's us, that he gave his only begotten Son, Jesus Christ, that whosoever believeth, trusteth, relies upon Christ, should not perish, means you will not go to hell, but have what? Everlasting life. Let's bow together, please. As your heads are bowed and eyes are closed, my friends, there's been a time in your life that you've trusted Christ as Savior. Have you ever experienced what Paul said to these Corinthian believers? Have you been washed, been sanctified, justified, washed from your sins by the blood of Christ, set apart unto the Lord, and also declared righteous by God because of your faith in Christ? If not, why not get it settled right now? Right where you sit in the quietness of your mind, you can talk to God, and you can trust Jesus Christ as your Savior. You can leave here knowing heaven's your home, that you have eternal life. If that is your desire, why not talk to God and tell him that? Why not put your trust in Christ as your Savior? Say, Pastor, I like to do that, but I don't know what to say. Maybe say something like this. Just say, dear God of heaven, I acknowledge that I'm a sinner. And because I've sinned, I've earned. I deserve your punishment. But God, I believe Jesus, your son, was punished in my place. The judgment I deserve, he took upon himself. And he suffered and bled and died for my sin. And right here today, realizing I cannot save myself, I'm trusting Christ to save me, to forgive me, and to give me eternal life. I'm receiving Christ as my personal Savior right here today. As heads are bowed and eyes are closed, my friend, did you pray that prayer? Did you just trust Christ as your Savior? If you did, according to the Bible, heaven is now your home. God saves you the moment you do that. But I'm going to close in prayer, but I'd like to include those who made that decision today. If right here today, for the first time, you understood that, and you trusted Christ to be your Savior, I'd like to pray for you. I'm not going to have you forward or not point you out. I'd just like for in one moment to raise your hand and indicate you did that. So if you trusted Christ as Savior this morning, when no one look around, just let me raise your hand in case you did that so I could pray for you. And what all? 
Pastor, here's my hand. I trusted Christ. Would you pray for me this morning? God bless you. Amen. Anyone else? Pastor, that made sense to me. I prayed to receive Christ my Savior. Would you pray for me also? Anyone else real quickly? Father in heaven, we thank you for this one. By the case of hand, this place, their trust in you as their Savior. Because of that, heaven is now their home. They have eternal life. They are now a child of God. I just pray you help them understand that great truth and share that with other people. But Father, now I pray that you'll go with us in separate ways. Watch over and protect each one of us. Help us be back again next time we're together to worship you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.